Just to give you a little note, the Muncie Choir is singing tonight at Suffer Springs. And we're going to do maybe 30 minutes before the program starts. And we've been practicing. It's, pretty, it's right nice music. You know, I'll have time to come here. I don't know. I don't know what time it is. I'd say six or seven, but that's not much. It's how much? Six thirty. Six thirty. Okay. I tarried too long at the gathering place. I hope all of you uh, will take advantage of testing that out next week. Um, Will you come pray for us? This morning, I wanted to start out by sharing with you the preamble to the social principles of United Methodist Church. These are printed in our lesson today on page 22. And then I'll close with a brief prayer. We the people called United Methodist affirm our faith in God our Creator and Father, in Jesus Christ our Savior, and in the Holy Spirit our guide and guard. We acknowledge our complete dependence upon God in birth, in life, in death, and in life eternal. Secure in God's love, we affirm the goodness of life and confess our many sins against God's will for us as we find it in Jesus Christ. We have not always been faithful stewards of all that have been committed to us by God the Creator. We have been reluctant followers of Jesus Christ in his mission to bring all persons into a community of love. Though called by the Holy Spirit to become new creatures in Christ, we have resisted the further call to become the people of God in our dwelling dealings with each other and the life on which we live. We affirm our unity in Jesus Christ while acknowledging differences and applying our faith in different cultural contexts as we live out the gospel. We stand united in declaring our faith that God's grace is available to all, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Grateful for God's forgiving love in which we live by and, and which we are judged, and affirming our belief in the inestimable worth of each individual, we renew our commitment to become faithful witnesses to the gospel, not alone to the ends of the earth, but also to the depths of our common life and work. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, as we study the church's positions on social principles, help us to see them as an invitation to live a life that will be in time with your will and the common good of all. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. 
And thank you for the prayer and for reading the preamble. Um, if you ordered a book and you were hoping to pick yours up today and you didn't because we're out, um, I'm sorry. I have more coming. Uh, it's my fault. I uh, was late in the week getting them ordered. And so they'll be here tomorrow. That doesn't help you very much today. Um, but the good news is we're still going to be on pages 1 through 25 for next week. So if you, for those of you who read, you're in good shape. right? You can go reread it. Um, but if you're, if you're one of those students who is anxious because you, know, you don't have a book and you want to be prepared for next Sunday, you talk to me afterward and I will, I will get the book to you between now and before next Sunday, I promise. If I have to drive it to your house, um, or I'll mail it to you, or I'll get it to you. I don't want anyone to be anxious for next week because of my uh, uh, falling, uh, failing to get the books here on time. So last week we did an introduction, and we're still going to, it occurred to me this week that there's, um, there's still some things we need to put in place. Um, so we're, we're not going to probably get too far into the uh, section one, the natural world. We, we may get a little bit in there. We may dip our toes into that water a little bit. Um, but we, there were several things we didn't get to do last week um, that I think is important for us to do. We're going to be lingering in these social principles. And um, as we said last week, if you weren't here, um, this is challenging material for us. Um, and I, I talked to a couple of uh, United Methodist uh, pastors, retired pastors, uh, in the last week or two. And um, they said, we never touched that when we were pastors. <laughs> um, and, and I don't blame them. I mean, it's their job. I mean, they get fired. And I joked last week, you can... You can fire me. I mean, worse things, but I, I'll still be able to eat. I think. Um, so, yeah, th these are these are difficult matters, and they're they're sometimes charged matters. And we were going to try to get at a little bit of why that is today. Um, but I'm hoping. Um, Tom Terry reminded me this morning that uh, the United Methodists have this um, traditional practice that Wesley talked about as far as conferencing, right, of, of, of being willing to discuss uh, with fellow Christians about things that are difficult and about things that we likely disagree about and, and trusting that the Holy Spirit is in the midst of that conversation. And I, I'm hoping that each week that we come, uh, it's not my expectation that um, by the time we leave here, We'll all be uh, we'll all be uh, agreed. We'll all think the same thing. We'll all be singing kumbaya. Um, that, that's that's not sort of my expectation. Um, just to remind ourselves, the reason one of the reasons we're doing this is because um, one of our own members, um, we were soliciting ideas of what we should be studying, and you'll remember Walt Seaman said we should look at the social principles. Uh, a lot of United Methodists um, 
lifelong United Methodists don't know much about the social principles. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people at Muncie are not lifelong Methodists and maybe have never even heard of the Book of Discipline other than that we happen to give one to a new minister each time he or she comes. It's one of the things we give them, but what, what's in it? Um, and why should anybody care? And so uh, Walt thought we should do this. And so um, we told him, um, we decided a couple months um, before he died that we were gonna do this. And um, it's one way uh, I, keep, I keep thinking about Walt when I'm preparing. Um, I'm both thanking him and um, not thanking him. <laughs> um, and as I, as I will say numerous times, we take now the time we're done, if, if you have a problem with something, just take it up with Walt when you, when you see him next. <laughs> okay. Um, so last week we were reminded that the, the social principles are found in two places in United Methodist documents. One is in the Book of Discipline, which is the, the basic book that orders United Methodist life. And it's interesting that where they come in the Book of Discipline, they come right after a section called uh, the Ministry of All Christians. Right, it's got a section after the doctrine. It talks about the doctrine of the United Methodist Church and, and lays out some of the historic doctrinal positions, theology of the United Methodist Church. And it has a section that talks about what's the role of all Christians in the church? Uh, what, what's their task in the body of Christ? And it's interesting, the next section then is the social principles. Um, so it has something to do with, I think, I don't think it's happenstance that it's there. Because after that, it goes on to talk about the various ways and levels of order uh, from the, the minister all the way up to the general conference about how United Methodists are ordered as a connectional church. Right? How are we are connected <coughs> together as United Methodists. And so this little, these few pages, it's, it's a small part of the Book of Discipline, uh, is, is in here. And then they're also found in the Book of Resolutions, which we mentioned last week briefly, um, which is uh, a huge book, has about 800 pages in it, in its current edition. Um, and just to give you an idea, the, the section that we're going to get to on the natural world, which in your booklet here, uh, has about three and a half pages of text that sort of highlights and sketches sort of the general social principles of the United Methodist Church about the natural world. Um, the Book of Resol Resolutions has uh, seven sections, one for each of the six sections that are in the social principles, and then another seventh section that's other principles that don't necessarily parallel these six sections, right? If you, if you look in your, if you have it, just to kind of remind you what the outline of the social principles is. Uh, it's the natural world, that's what we're going to be talking about first. Then the nurturing community, the social community, the economic community, the political community, the world community. Those are the six sections of the social principles. And the Book of Re Resolutions has a section for each of those in which specific policy recommendations are laid out 
that have been passed by the General Conference. The General Conference, as we talked about last week, is the only group that speaks for the entire church in United Methodism. Okay, and it meets every four years. Um, and so, this little three and a half page section that you have on the natural world in here, if you go to the Book of Resolutions, there are actually 50 pages of resolutions. Okay, 50 pages of specific resolutions that the General Conference has passed over the years about how United Methodists take these social principles and then try to apply them to particular issues facing us. And when those are passed in General Conference, we said last week, it's kind of really interesting, and I really like this. This is relatively recent in United Methodism. But they have a shelf life of eight years. Okay, if you pass a resolution that says, this is what the United Methodist Church thinks we should respond to this particular issue, say, in the natural world right now. If they pass that resolution, uh, after eight years, the default assumption is, is going to go out of the Book of Discipline, out of the Book of Resolutions, unless it's reaffirmed. So it has to be reaffirmed. So there's nothing here that says, well, somebody said that, you know, 80 years ago, but we don't even remember why they said that. Right? Churches have that problem, right? Um, we don't even know why we do Sunday school anymore. Right? A lot of people would be hard-pressed to know, like, what's the historic reason we have Sunday school? Like, where did it come from? It has something to do with John Wesley, right? Right? It actually originally was to teach people how to read. Right? It literally was a Sunday school because Wesley was concerned that there were poor people couldn't get educated. And he wanted the poor people to be able to read so they had Sunday school. <coughs> so you didn't know that. Yeah. That's where it came from. Wesley's commitment to the poor. If you wanted to help the poor, one thing you could do was to teach them to read. Okay. Now, I'm presuming you can. That's why we have these. <laughs> I don't know if you did, but I'm, I'm assuming you can. And so Sunday school has become something else. That's fine. Not, not a thing wrong with that. But the point is, sometimes you can forget why you started doing something. And the Book of Resolutions just assumes that unless you... Because the world changes, and the way we see things changes. And so I think... I wish a lot of other things only had a shelf life of eight years and then went away unless we thought we still needed them. Right? Um, be a lot of things that would be helpful. So that's so that's why we're doing this, and um, it's going to be difficult. Um, there'll be days, as I said, we sort of ended last week, but my hope would be that. Um, all of us at some point will find ourselves sort of having one of three reactions and it's going to be different for different ones of us on different days. Um, some of us are going to read a particular social principle and we're going to be thrilled and affirmed and excited that something you've always thought was a sort of implication of the gospel the United Methodists have in black and white. And you're thinking, good for them, good for us. That makes sense to me. There's going to be others that we're perplexed by. 
maybe even defensive about because it seems to run counter uh, to deep convictions that we have and we don't know what to do with that. And here again, I'm asking you to be opening, open to the kind of holy conferencing of the people of God to try to try to think through why, why would the general conference, which is representative of the United Methodist Church around the world, not just here in the United States, why would faithful Christians trying to follow the way of Jesus, why would they think that's an implication of the gospel, even if I don't? Why would they? And, and can I allow those voices to challenge me, at least think through uh, why that might be the case? And then I, I think there's something you might just be surprised about. Uh, you might be surprised to think, you know what, I really never thought to connect those dots. I never really thought to connect the gospel and the witness to the gospel to that particular social issue. Um, and I suspect in any part of the social principles, we could find people in all of those places. And so, um, so I thought we'd start today. I was going to do this last week, but we didn't have time. But I, I just want to kind of remind us of what I think we all know, and that is isn't in a group of 75 or 80 of us, I don't know how many there are, roughly that many. Um, there's great diversity here in the room. Uh, on all kinds of levels. And most of the diversity, most of the time, you can't see. Right? I mean, sometimes we talk about diversity, we talk about just kind of diversity you can see. Um, like you can see roughly that most of us aren't 20 anymore. Um, right? I kept it low. I didn't see. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's other kinds of obvious things that might be markers of diversity, but there's lots of different kinds of diversity. So I, I thought I'd ask you some questions, and if you're comfortable, uh, I'm going to ask a question, and this applies to you. Um, just raise your hand briefly, and we're going to move quickly through this, and just asking you to be honest. But again, if, if you're embarrassed, there's not really anything embarrassing here, I don't think. Um, <laughs> wasn't intended to be, just really trying to be informative. And in a perfect world, we're all sitting in a giant circle here, so you could see who's raising their hands. Here the people in the back have an advantage, because they can see you, but you can't see them. Although you can kind of, you can sneak a peek if you want. Okay, so raise your hand if you're the oldest child in your family. Firstborn. A lot of firstborn. Interesting. How about if you're an only child? Raise your hand. Not very many. Interesting. How about if you raise your hand if you were raised in a farming community? There you go. How about if your first language is a language other than English? Thank you. How about if you work to pay for all of your own education? Good. How about if your parents or whoever it was that raised you were working class, did manual labor? Yeah. 
How about if you served in the military? Thank you. How about you have visited a mosque or synagogue? Okay, good, thank you. How about if you know someone who abuses or has abused alcohol or other drugs? How about if you know someone who has died of a tobacco-related disease? Thank you. How about if you know or have known someone living with HIV or AIDS? How about if you know or have known someone who's received an organ transplant? That should be most of the class. One of our own? Yeah. How about if you know someone who's had an abortion? What if you know someone who self-identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender? What if you've known someone who's survived domestic violence? What if you've experienced yourself some form of racial injustice? What if you've known someone who has contemplated or completed suicide? Raise your hand if you've ever gone to bed not sure if you would eat the next day. Raise your hand if you've lost your home to a natural disaster, tornado, hurricane, something like that. <coughs> Raise your hand if you know someone well, let's change it. Raise your hand if you have a family, family member, friend, or acquaintance who has been incarcerated. Raise your hand if you've ever been part of a picket line or a protest demonstration. Okay. Well, we, we could do this all day. <laughs> But my hunch is something surprised you there. At least one thing, right? Maybe it was the number of people, a lot more people uh, raised their hands than you thought, and maybe even some people around the room you thought you knew. It's like, I didn't know that about them. That Claudette, she's a little rebel. <laughs> Most of us knew that, though. That's why we love her. Yeah. We all have a lot. There's nobody here that has the same set of experiences. Okay? We all have a different set of experiences. And when we look at the world and we try to sort through our faith and how it plays out, all of that's in play for us in ways that often we don't even know. And so I'm hoping that that will be one way for us to be kind of reminded to offer each other grace when 
someone sitting next to you or uh, you find out that someone sees the world very differently than you do. Um, a huge part of the way that I see the world is based on the way that I, my own experiences, how, how the world has come to me, through what experiences has the world come to me and to you. And for all of us, that's different. And so, of course, we're going to see the world differently. But it's also the case, as was read in the preamble, that we're called to be part of the one body of Christ. Which doesn't mean that we have to, in lockstep, think exactly the same thing. But it does mean we have to be willing to wrestle with each other honestly and in good faith about what our faith is and how it might apply to daily life. Not just personally, although that's important, of course, but also socially, because we are social creatures, as we keep saying. God created us as social creatures, and so, of course, our faith has implications for the social realm. So what I thought we would do for the rest of the time today, I just want to lay out uh, seven sort of clusters of convictions that I'm pretty sure are going to be in play beyond just sort of the personal experiences that we've had. And they're not going to be in play just for this first week about the natural world, but I'm pretty sure they're going to be in play whether spoken or not each time we talk about any of the social principles. And I thought before we got sort of jump into the social principles, we ought to be honest that these sort of deep theological convictions um, about which we also don't think in lockstep, but we have some things that we say about this as Christians and as United Methodists, that we could remember that these also are in play. Um, and they're very basic things, but they're, they're critical. And so I want us to remind ourselves that when we're thinking through these things, these seven, and I'm, I'm going to give you seven just because that's a biblical number, right? Um, but there could be 70, but that, that, then we'd never get off of introduction and you would go to another Sunday school class. And uh, yeah. So let me just give you, let's just talk about briefly seven of these. And uh, at some point, I may put them on a little piece of paper and have a stack so you can slip it in your Bible or in your social principles. So you can, so as you're reading, you can keep these in mind. Okay. And I don't think there's anything here that surprises you about these. So here, here are seven that seem to me to be important. Uh, one, one, who is God? Well, we spent 18 weeks on the Apostles' Creed. So uh, I hope you have some insight into that. You had insight into it before, right? But who is God? I mean, the whole, <laughs> the social principles wouldn't exist for United Methodists if they, if they weren't rooted deeply in convictions about who God is, right? This is, a, this is a God revealed as 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who care so much about the world that this God becomes incarnate, takes on flesh, and enters the social world. Right? God didn't just stay aloof, say, I'm not going to get my hands dirty and all that messy stuff. No, Jesus comes in to our world, gets his hands dirty, has difficult conversations about the, the issues of the day. Right? Should you pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus? Jesus didn't say, you know what? Religion and politics don't mix. Hush. This is just about you and God. No, he doesn't. I mean, um, we believe in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who, it's the Spirit of Jesus who God gives to us to animate our lives, both individually and corporately, so that we might be able to bear witness to the world of what this God desires. And this God desires shalom and wholeness for all. This is who this God is. And that's, we have to keep that in mind, right? When we're talking about the social principles. We're not just talking about issues, but we're talking about who is God and what's the implication of who God is for who we are, which is the second one, right? Who am I? So first one is who's God? Second one is who am I? Who are you? Who are we? What's our, what's our identity? And again, our culture gives us all kinds of identity markers, right? I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a parent. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a conservative. I'm a progressive. I'm a whatever, right? Hundreds and hundreds of things. But is the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus, is that just, just another, any old one? Identity marker? Is it just part? Is that just a little embroidery around everything else? Oh, and by the way, I'm a Christian. No, that's not what we think. We think that that goes to the core of who we are, that we are children of God, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we belong to one another and God. And that that has enormous implications for how we live in the world. That has to be in play. Who, who are we in light of who God is? Three, who's my neighbor? Jesus was asked that, wasn't he? Uh, who is my neighbor? Um, you can't, I mean, if you want to boil it down, you could do a lot worse than saying, why do we have the social principles? One answer is, it's an attempt to answer, who is my neighbor? And what responsibility do I have to my neighbor? You know, it's in response to that question that Jesus tells the story of the Samaritan, right? The story we call the Good Samaritan, but Jesus doesn't call him good. I keep telling you that. I like calling, calling him the minimally decent Samaritan, <laughs> right? Jesus' famous parable, right? 
Jesus doesn't make him a hero. They're just like, this is what a decent person would do. Even a Samaritan, the people you despise, would do that. Right? This person thought he had an obligation to another human being, made in the image of God, regardless of his ethnicity. And so, who, who is my neighbor? And how, how broad am I willing to think of my neighbor? We now have a train interlude. <laughs> I've had one for a while. You know, it, in, in our culture, we often think of neighbor as like the person who lives next to me. Um, which, is, which is true, that's your neighbor. That's not just your neighbor, right? Um, and, and once you start to broaden your notion of neighbor, then your obligation to your neighbor changes. Right? Um, if my neighbor is just the person who lives, lives next door to me, or the person who looks like me, thinks like me, acts like me, that's one set of obligations. Uh, but what if my neighbor is... Uh, I'm hoping it's just the choir, not that I said something wrong. <laughs> you always get nervous when a whole bunch of people just get up and walk out. It's like, I'm starting to talk to think, like, what did I just say? <laughs> but what if, um, what if my neighbor is also, say, all people on the planet? What if those are my neighbors? What obligation do I have to them? What if my neighbor also includes potentially future generations? Are they my neighbor too? Your grandchildren, your grandchildren's grandchildren, the people halfway around the world that you've never met, their grandchildren's grandchildren, are they your neighbor too? What about other cre creatures that God has created? Are they my neighbor? Do I have obligation to them? If so, then the question is, who is my neighbor? What my responsibility is to my neighbor shifts. So who is God? Who am I? Who's my neighbor? How is God at work in the world? Number four. How is God at work in the world? Does God... I mean, there are some people who say, you know, when things get bad, don't worry about it. God will sort it out. God will fix it. Maybe. I mean, I have no doubt at some point God's going to sort everything out. But does that mean we just sit back and let the show run? Right? If it breaks down, it breaks down. God will fix it or not. Not our job. Or does, do we have some... Does God work through human beings? Right? I mean, were the, were, the, were the Christians who worked to stop slavery wrong? Why didn't they get involved? They could have just let the system go. If God wanted to fix, it'll get fixed. God will sort it out. No, they had a sense that somehow God worked through people to bring about a, a closer approximation of God's desires for human life. They had no illusion they would get it all right. 
but they thought it was important, given who God was, who they were, who their neighbor was, right? That somehow God was going to work through them. Five, who do we trust? Right? Whose voices do we listen to to discern these matters? And here I just want to briefly remind us that when we, uh, on what basis do we make decisions as United Methodists? Um, I hope you may have come across the little section in the introduction that talked about the quadrilateral. Um, if you're not sure what that is, go back and read again. Uh, the Methodists, I mean, Wesley, to me this is one of the genius of United Methodism. Um, Wesley said that when Christians discern about what's true and how to see the world and how to discern it about how to live the Christian life, they, they kept four things in play. That's why it's a quadrilateral. It's like a four-legged table, which is pretty stable. One-legged table's a bad table. <laughs> Two-legged table's pretty tricky, too. Three's stable, but not as stable as four. And so there's scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Those four things. And if we had time, we'd recognize that those aren't actually four separate things. Um, but for Christians, any one of those requires the other three, right? In other words, you don't read scripture apart from tradition, experience, and reason. So it doesn't, these aren't sort of four isolated things. Tradition itself as a Christian is informed by scripture and experience. And you begin to see how those are interwoven. Um, so it's important to keep those in mind when you're thinking about these social principles and whether you find them agreeable or not, or surprising, you might ask yourself, you know, what's the, on what basis am I judging that? Is it because it's in line with scripture, tradition, reason, experience, some set of those, all of those, none of those, right? All of those will be interesting to keep in play, right, for United Methodists. Six, what do we know about the state of the world, right? What do we know about the state of the world? And here I'm thinking as Christians, these are Christian convictions. Well, let me just briefly say three things. One, it's relational. Everything is connected. If we've learned anything in the last hundred years, it's everything's connected, right? What I, what I do here in Johnson City potentially affects people in other places outside of Johnson City. Um, if you have uh, an oil spill, you know, 10,000 miles away, it potentially affects the whole world, not just there, right? Um, we're interconnected in ways that we're just now beginning to understand the depth of that interconnection. So we're relational. We're not just related to each other, although we are, but we're also, God made us connected to the rest of the world. Whether you like it or not, uh, I don't really care if you're a tree hugger or not. Um, but you can't live without trees, and I can't either, and God made it that way. 20% of the oxygen that's available in the world comes from the Amazon basin. 20% of the entire oxygen in the world is produced by the Amazon rainforest. 
So you have a stake in the Amazon rainforest and so does every other living thing on the planet. And God made us interconnected. Okay? I don't have to like it. You don't have to like it. That's just the way it is. All right? We're related. We're connected. Our well-being, the well-being of all of our neighbors is connected. So we're relational. Creation, second thing. Creation is beautiful, amazing, awe-inspiring. I mean, who can look at the state of the world? I mean, there's, there's a lot that's beautiful and astounding, astonishing about the way God has created all that is. But also, there, it's, there's brokenness in it. Right? There's woundedness in creation. We've, we've left our own scars on creation, and some of it's out of order. Last thing, seven. What are the measures of the good life? What's a good life? A lot of you have thought about this a lot. You've had years to think about this, and you may have thought about it differently in different seasons of your life. But there's lots of voices in our, in our lives that tell us what the good life is. Um, scripture and the Christian tradition experience has some things to say about what the good life is. And we'll have to wrestle with that because presumably we want a life that's good. I mean, I appreciated the prayer that talked about the common good, right? Um, What's the common good that we want for all of God's creatures, right? including all human beings made in the image of God? So those things are going to be in play every time we talk, and I hope that we'll be mindful of that, because whether we say it or not, all of our responses to these social principles will be informed by all of our own experiences, personal experiences, but also by deep convictions that we have about those seven things. A lot of other things too, but those are seven pretty key things that are gonna, uh, a lot's gonna be hanging on them. So um, next week we'll get into the natural world, uh, those three and a half pages. So come prepared and we'll work through a little bit of that. And I'll also bring a couple of res I'll pick out a couple of resolutions out of those 50 pages just to give you some idea, a taste of what United Methodists have done with them. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for who you are. Uh, if you were not who you are, uh, we would not be here today gathered in the name of your blessed Son who has revealed to us uh, more clearly than any other revealing your heart for the world. We pray that your spirit might be alive and at work in our hearts, both individually in our hearts as a congregation and as a church, that more and more each day, the heart that animates our life will beat with the life of your heart. That we may see what you see, that we may weep with what makes you weep, that we can rejoice with what you rejoice in, and that we will reach out in love and concern and compassion to whoever is our neighbor this week. We pray this through Christ.